please be seated. Can everyone hear me clearly? Excellent. Please turn your Bibles to Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. I'm going to read the passage. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I want to start with a prayer. Jesus, please meet with us tonight. Please supernaturally open our hearts so we could drink so deeply of your love. Your love changes everything. Holy Spirit, open our hearts. Let the fire of your love come down this evening. Thank you for your love. Amen. Colossians 2, verses 6 to 7 states this, Just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. Last Sunday evening, Emily talked really powerfully about Christ being in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's also true that we're in him. He's in us and we're in him, which means we're one with him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6:17, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We are one with Christ. And being one with Christ means that you, and Jesus have been melted together by the fire of God's love. This is a covenantal union. Covenant is often framed as a sacred and binding agreement between two or more parties, but the deepest, fullest, and truest meaning of covenant is to become one with another. We see this in earthly marriage, of course. Two people leave their different parents' homes and become one flesh. And in this case, we become one with Christ as his bride. 
In our union with Jesus, he has given every last bit of himself, all of himself, the fullness of who he is. Verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Christ has the fullness of God in him, and we have the fullness of Christ in us. We don't need to turn to any religious system or hollow and deceptive philosophy. Verse 8, to gain more of Christ, we have all of him. He has fully given himself to us in love. And we are to respond by fully giving ourselves to him in love. Our union with Christ is mystical. And Paul uses theological and covenantal language to speak of it. But there is immediate practical application. The exciting thing about our union with Christ, the very obvious thing, is that there's no separation. There's no distance to cover. There's no shouting up into the stars, wondering if he's there, wondering if he can hear us. Quite the opposite, Christ is in us. As St. Therese Revavila said, that great mystic of the Spanish church, we need no wings to go in search of him, but have only to look upon him present within us. There's no distance, there's no separation, there's no barriers between us and Christ, which means there are no limitations to the depths of intimacy that we may enjoy with him. He's right here. He's in the spirit. He's in us. He's before us. He's around us. He's face to face with us when we pray. And we can be as close to Jesus as we want to be in any given moment. It's according to our desire. Intimacy means into you, into me you see. Intimacy, into me you see. It means coming to Jesus with a wide open heart, letting him see into every part of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and letting him love every part of us. If you want to explore your union with Christ, then let love be your guide. Drink deeply of the wine of his love and pour out your love for him in return. Our union with Christ is the platform upon which we build a divine romance. So fix your eyes upon the bridegroom. Worship him and live from a place of embrace, knowing his grace. Don't spend your life standing before Jesus like a frozen ice sculpture with crossed arms. Lean in and let the fire of his love melt you and let his life melt into every part of yours. Lean into the secret place of divine union where you discover a love and a bliss that goes beyond anything that can be experienced in this world. A place of captivation and absorption into the pleasures of knowing him. A love so deep and so sweet that you start to lose sight of yourself and want nothing more than to keep drinking of him. It's the place where you cry out, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. The secret place where Jesus, the bridegroom, gives the bride his heart, his engagement ring, and all of himself. I've learned over many years, having journeyed through many false starts and slow seasons in my walk with God, that intimacy is the golden key that unlocks our experience of union with Christ and all of the mysteries, the revelations, and the depths contained within him. So lean in. 
There is a cost, of course, to pursuing intimacy with Jesus. It costs him everything, and it will cost us much. We have to begin by owning our own emptiness and our own desperate need for him, our own darkness, the total bankruptcy of our own pride and self-effort. In the spirit, we are rich, but in the flesh, what do we have? Nothing, really. What do you think the biggest challenge is facing the Western church? Different things, but in my opinion, it's that we think we can do it. We really think we can do it. We don't realize how empty we are because we're so comfortable and so satiated with clever, shiny Christianity. There's a lack of poverty of spirit in the West. We're still too impressed with our own efforts. We haven't yet come to the end of ourselves in the Western church, not corporately, individuals have, but corporately, we have not quite come to the, the end of ourselves. We don't realize how desperately we need him, and it can be a humbling realization that without him, we can do nothing. It's only when we grasp the, our own emptiness in the flesh that the fullness of Christ can flow through us. To live out of his life and not our own will require a radical surrender, a deep poverty of spirit, and an understanding that all lasting fruitfulness only comes from abiding in his love, in intimate communion with the one who loves us. And this is the beginning of dying to self, a laying down of our self-life, a crucifixion of our fleshly desires. Jesus said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Andrew Murray, not the tennis star, but the, uh, the Scottish missionary, he wrote this, in death alone, the life of God will come. To die with Christ is the only way to live in him. Paul wrote, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's divine union. His life flowing into us, and through us as we lean away from ourselves and unto him. Our union with Christ is so encompassing and complete that we actually become one with him in his burial and resurrection. Verses 11 and 12, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God. These spiritual realities are a reflection of our union with him. The old you, before you were born again, was marked by separation. That old you, that old nature, that old identity, that part of you that was separated from God and enslaved to sin has died and is buried with Christ. And the new born again you has been raised with Christ and is marked by union with Christ. Our old nature was apart. Our new nature is joined as one and we're united with him in his crucifixion, burial and resurrection. And actually, I just had a picture from the Lord of a person handcuffed to another person who's, who's dead. And that's actually the old nature and some of us are still attached. We're still dragging around the old you and but the old you is gone, the old you is dead, and so we need to let go, break off the handcuffs. Um, I don't know who that's for. But we're now raised as new creations 
and given a new heart, a heart that's been circumcised by Christ, a heart that is one with God's heart, a heart that loves God and delights in obeying Him. When you're in love, you'll want to please the one you love, and it won't be a chore and it won't be the law. One new creation with one new heart. And as one, we've been lifted up into the heavenly realms and seated with Christ, with him on his throne. We're co-crucified, co-buried, co-raised, co-ascended, co-enthroned. One throne for you and Christ because you are one. That's quite a wedding present. And on his throne, you are seated high above every power and principality because Christ is the head over every power and authority, verse 9. There's not a single demon in the cosmos that's not under your feet in Christ. Our union with Christ extends across eternity. Our union is mystical, powerful, heavenly, and immediate. But it's not always easy to grasp the reality of our divine union. And one reason for this is the echo of the fall. Our great separation from God after we were we were banished from Eden. Has that generational trauma ever been healed? Or do we still see ourselves as Christians uh, still as somehow spiritually orphaned from and distant from God? Thousands of years of humanity living in separation from God has left its mark. It's given us deeply ingrained mindsets, false perceptions of separation, distance, and barriers. The mind governed by the flesh can still assume God is far off and that we have to strive to get to him or win his approval or connect with him in some way. Many of us relate to God on, a, on even a subconscious level as a distant deity. It's hard to know, hard to reach, hard to please, passive, unmovable, emotionless, or controlling. And some of this has been cemented into the church by bad theology, overly influenced by pagan, philosophical Greek ideas of God but it's a spiritually orphaned view of God. It's the unknown God that Paul identified in Athens. It's not revelation, it's not reality, it's not relationship, it's not union. And on top of this illusion of separation and distance, we also have to deal with the accuser. The enemy cannot break our union with Christ, but he can cause us to lean away from it. He wants to drive a wedge between us and God. He wants to violate and tear down our relationship with Christ. And he does this through accusation. He comes in the dark with the pointing of the finger and fires poison darts into our hearts, causing us to feel condemned and become both self-conscious and sin-conscious, focused on our faults. He wants, to put, he wants us to put our eyes on ourselves, on our own failings, and not on the bridegroom. Because he knows that when we're sin conscious, if we don't run very quickly to the mercy seat, then we can easily start to feel condemned and guilt, shame, and the fear of punishment comes flooding in. We all fear the consequences of sin at a primeval level. So we draw back and hide from God. We lean away from our union with Christ. We seek distance from him. If the enemy can convince you that your wedding garments are permanently stained, he may persuade you to skip the wedding. 
the enemy accuses us, he accuses God, he accuses others, and he can suck us into that same spirit. And our unity becomes like a pane of glass that's dropped and shattered into hundreds of little pieces. This played out in Eden. Satan accused God in front of Adam and Eve. He insinuated God was lying, that they couldn't trust him, that God was withholding something good from them, that he was misleading them about the tree of knowledge. And his accusations called Adam and Eve to doubt, to sin, and develop a strong sense of sin consciousness. They became aware of their nakedness and were ashamed. And then their fear of punishment caused them to distance themselves from God and hide behind the bush. How many of us hide behind the bush when we feel we've fallen short? When questioned, Adam partnered with that same spirit of accusation. First he accused God, then he accused Eve. He said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Accusation went viral. We were divided from God. We were divided from each other. And a permanent sense of sin consciousness and a fear of punishment got locked into our consciousness. The poisoned darts of accusation are potent. The story of Job is also useful here. He was a righteous man, but he was accused by the enemy before God of being a fraud, of being a man whose righteousness was just a cloak to obtain the blessings and the protection that he wanted. And Satan's challenge was that if the blessings dried up, then Job's relationship with God would dry up. Take away the blessings and he will curse you. It was an accusation devised to drive a wedge between God and Job. Job's wife told him to lean away from God, to curse God and die, but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Despite all of Job's anger and self-pity and blame, he hung in there, just about in relationship. What we can learn from Job's story is that if we're feeling condemned or if we're facing accusation or dealing with any great trials or great suffering, that leaning away from God, away from our union with God, is playing right into the enemy's hands. When relationship with God is under attack, always double down on relationship. The story of Job is the wisdom of always trusting and always choosing relationship in the face of the accuser. Always lean in. Always choose him, no matter what, because Christ has chosen you from eternity. Some of uh, Job's friends obviously partnered with the accuser against him, and God was not very pleased about it. We must never, ever, ever side with the accuser against other Christians. The enemy is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, 10. But we are one body in Christ, called to be one in spirit with each other. You cannot love Christ unless you love his body and honor every part of it because we're all one in him. We're called to be one with God and one with each other. And we're called to wash each other's feet regardless of any disagreement. The final verses of our passage tonight give us the solution to the poison dart of accusation. Verses 13 to 14. 
God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Our sins were laid on Jesus. Our charge sheet was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And he died in our place, bearing our penalty. There is no charge sheet. There is no legal indebtedness anymore for those who are in Christ. And this very act of removing the charge sheet has in itself disarmed the powers and principalities. Verse 15. The primary weapon of the demonic realm is accusation, but now the enemy is disarmed. Our charge sheet nailed to the cross with Christ. The enemy can still try to accuse, but his accusations have no force or legal weight in the courts of heaven, and his darts have no right to strike our hearts. Satan is disarmed. This is the triumph of the cross. Colossians 1.22 he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the finger of accusation points at us at our failures and sins, then we point our finger at Christ and what he has done. Jesus paid a very high price on that cross, the ultimate price, because he didn't want our sins to get in the way of divine romance. He didn't want his bride held up in court. He set us free so we could attend our wedding to him. And when the priest asks in the service if anyone has any just cause, any legal objection to the marriage, and when Satan stands up in the congregation to shout with rage and, and bluster and accusation and finger-pointing, to find fault and delay the wedding proceedings, we can just smile and turn our backs and carry on down the aisle. The ceremony can't be stopped because the charge sheet of legal indebtedness has been taken away and we have divorced this world. There are only two directions of travel in our Christian walk. We either lean into our union with Christ or we lean out. It's either down the aisle or out the back door. In any given moment, we're either moving towards him or away from him. There's a lot of things that can cause us to lean away. Accusation and condemnation are one. At other times, we walk away from God in outright rebellion. At other times, we are distracted by the shiny things of this world. At other times, we choose to hold on to our faith, but choose to lean out and relate to God from a distance where we feel more safe, performing for him in the strength of our flesh, compensating for our distance by being good Christians. This leaning out is accentuated to the degree that we believe God is distant, angry, or hard to please. And to the degree we believe he disapproves of us or that we've fallen short. The enemy knocks us down 
in the hope that we will respond by trying harder to measure up. And this puts us in great danger of being religious. For me, religion is the flesh trying to please God. It's often well-intentioned, but it's an attempt to earn more of him despite having all of him. And if we try to please God in the flesh through our own efforts, then we have distanced ourselves from him in our hearts. We've missed it. Jesus is wanting us to simply enjoy our union with him, not to try to prove ourselves or punish ourselves. Life only flows from union. Fruitfulness only comes from intimacy. Religious systems are built on the, on the lies of the enemy, the lie that we're stuck in our old identity as miserable sinners and worms, good only for punishment, rather than us being saints, new creations with new hearts clothed in his righteousness. The lies of separation and distance which simply become self-fulfilling. The lie that we can earn more of God when we have all of God. And the lie that we should strive to spiritually perform to win his love, cover our own sins and ease our own sin consciousness when the truth is that Jesus has covered us with his blood and we stand eternally forgiven. Religion is based on works, performance, pride, competition, comparison. It's all rooted in the flesh and the measuring ruler that the enemy puts in our hands becomes a tool we whip ourselves with and a tool that we whip others with too. It never ends well, just in more failure, more condemnation or more pride if we think we're doing better than others. None of this helps anyone. Religion never leads to union. Union can only be received as a free gift of grace. If you work to attain something that you already have, you've missed it and you won't be living from it. I know because I've been there. Unaware of God's love and approval as a younger Christian, I tried to earn his approval. I tried very, very hard. And I was an elite spiritual striver. And all of my spiritual activity was working towards love rather than from love. I wasn't living in him, I wasn't leaning in, and I wasn't enjoying intimacy. I was standing at a distance trying to please him, and what a waste of time that was. I don't know how God put up with me. There's no joy in religion. But over the years, God started to convince me of his love to the point where I feel I have nothing to prove to him anymore. Christ is in me. I get to lean into him, rest upon his chest, and be one with his love. It's this kind of religious striving that the Colossians were grappling with and that Paul was confronting in this letter. There has been long academic speculation over what exact heresy the Colossians were facing. In verse 4, Paul warns about fine-sounding arguments. In verse 8, Paul warns against hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world. 
Later in the chapter, Paul warns against those who would judge others for what they eat or drink or with regards to religious festivals, new moon celebrations or Sabbaths. He warns of false humility and the worship of angels. He warns that these people are puffed up, verse 18, and that they were bringing in unnecessary rules according to the doctrines of men and encouraging harsh treatment of the body despite which they weren't achieving anything. What weird stuff were these people into? Was this all an early form of Gnosticism? Proto-Gnosticism with their harsh treatment of the body? Was it Jewish legalism with the focus on religious festivals? Or a mixture of both? Was it Jewish Gnosticism? That's what a lot of the, the early kind of commentators believed. Or was Paul confronting the philosophical cynic school of, so of thought as some have more recently proposed? Or was it Essenism or Marcionism or Cerinthianism? One scholar suggests it was Iranian ideas influencing the church. Another suggests it was a heresy from Egypt. Another suggests Neo-Pythagorism. Or perhaps the church was grappling with followers of a mystery cult of the elements. I won't go through all the pros and cons of each one and whether they fit, you'll be relieved to hear. But none of them quite fit the whole portrait, the whole painting that Paul has here. Nobody has a definitive answer of what this heresy or philosophy is. And that's probably good that we can't blame a particular sect or a particular group of people. Otherwise, we'd write it off as, that's not us. It's easy to disassociate from those we can label. I don't know who Paul's opponents were at Colossae or the exact philosophy they embraced, but I do know that when I read about them in this letter, I can just smell religion. The infiltrators in that church were puffed up, which means spiritual pride, religious pride. They were suffering from false humility. False humility is pride in hiding. It's a form of humility concerned with projecting an image of humility in order to win others over rather than true humility of heart. It's a big flashing warning sign that a religious yeast is present because it's based on polishing the outside of your cup while the inside remains unclean. It's pharisaical in nature. Paul's opponents in Colossae were also bringing division. Religion is always very divisive, factional, and political. They were acting as though they could earn more of Christ, basing their faith on what they could do in the flesh. This is why Paul had to talk about how the physically uncircumcised in the congregation had had their hearts circumcised by Christ. It was a rebuke to those who thought they had to attain something in the flesh. Paul's opponents in Colossae were not leaning into their union with Christ. The whole thing has the stench of pride, of ego, of works, and it was worrying Paul because it was a misstep. Their rituals weren't bringing anyone closer to God. They had lost connection with the head. They had leaned out. They weren't living in him. They weren't in love. They didn't know they were the bride. They hadn't tasted of the bridegroom's affections for them. They hadn't drunk of his wine. We don't do that kind of legalism anymore. But it doesn't mean 
this isn't a danger for all of us. It's so easy to rely on the strength of our own flesh in our Christian walk. It's so easy to lean out and relate to God from a distance. We can still be spiritual performers. We can still come under spiritual pride, overly concerned with the outside of the cup and how we come across. We can still be religious, but lean away from it and lean into Christ. Remember who you are engaged to. Jesus doesn't want our works. He wants our hearts. I'm going to wrap, wrap this talk up. We're one with Christ for eternity. And he is to be our one love. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I promised you to one husband, to Christ. And if you want to enjoy the fullness of your union with Christ, my three tips this evening are one, lean into intimacy. It is the golden key. Two, die to yourself. Surrender your life to enjoy his. And three, know that you are eternally forgiven, silencing the voice of the accuser who would seek to condemn and divide. Intimacy, surrender, and having a clean, washed conscience. That's how we live in him day by day. Each day we get to choose. We either lean into him to share in his life or we lean out into darkness. Religion is marked by distance and performance, but in the kingdom it's the opposite. It's union and communion. Religion says, do, do, do. The troublemakers at Colossae were saying, do, 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 do this, do that. But Jesus says, done, done, done. It's all done on the cross. Relax, it's done. We're one, melted together in the fire of God's love. Lean into that fire. Bathe in his love. Live out of his embrace and enjoy being one with him. If I could get the band up, we're going to respond by worshipping and then after the worship, we're going to pray and do some ministry.